myself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past I'm dwelling on the thoughts I cannot say to you If I don't say the words that maybe Good morning, welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith. It is a pre-recorded show with Ben Jacobs. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, how are you? Very good, mate. Good to see you. I'm still enjoying the World Cup. Are you? Loving it on the field. It's been dramatic, pulsating, exhausting, and particularly the concurrent games that have ended the groups have been just astonishing. We were counting cards to work out whether fair play might come into the mix with Poland and Mexico. And then, of course, Japan coming from behind to beat Spain and knocking out Germany in the process as well was just a wonderful moment, I would imagine, for a lot of Newcastle United fans with their England caps on. But if we take away the England-Germany rivalry, it was just box office drama on the field. Yeah, it was. What do you make of that yellow cards thing? Um, I mean, bizarre, really, um, you know, in this, it, to, to go down that route. Um, and you say you were counting the cards to see who, who was going to yeah. go out. I mean, goal difference, you know, goal score, etc. We're used to that. But yellow cards? It's strange, isn't it? And you can only have so many separators. So I suppose from FIFA's point of view, they would just argue that if you're going to say goal difference, goal scored, and then head to head... Beyond that, you can have goals conceded. You could make them come on the field and do a penalty shootout, I suppose. They draw lots if everything is equal. And fair play is just a part of that to try and get a separator that's so far down the list that they feel it would only come into play once in a blue moon. So if it's necessary, then I suppose FIFA would argue that it's not so much ridiculous as just ultimately so far down on their list of things to turn to if they need to. And if the eventuality arises, then so be it. It's there. What else can you do? I think we'd all love to see teams completely tied play in a kind of winner-takes-all game. But the Winter World Cup in particular, but any World Cup generally, doesn't necessarily have that kind of space on the calendar. And it would be an extra game for two teams. So I'm not against it because when it comes to the four we're debating it like it's an everyday occurrence, but of course it's once in a blue moon and it didn't even happen. And that tells you that it's always going to be unlikely. So I thought it was quite fun. And if it did finish seven apiece in yellow cards, it would have made it very intriguing. And then FIFA would have had to go and draw lots. And that is the cruelty of football. That is the reality sometimes that things come down to a lottery or ultimately a coin toss, but it's just something that we're talking about as a hypothetical. It didn't happen, and that says everything. It's very, very unlikely, and what more can FIFA really do? Because there's only so many separators you can have, and if sides are just completely even after those separators, then I just don't see what more can be done. Yeah, okay. Interesting stuff. Uh, all the same, and uh, England's still in it. We'll come to England in a bit. I did want to ask you um, about... Juventus in the news this week. Um, you know, for me, the, the, you know, the the fact that Juventus have, you know, got all of these issues around them is no surprise. And you know, we, we've talked, we've spoken about this with, with with teams such as Barcelona as well. And 
not even in the UK, Manchester United, the way that you know the way that the owners have come in and, and you know the way that they do the finances. You you know as a football fan, as an observer, you look and go, how can a club run with you know accruing that much debt and how it gets balanced off? What kind of state will the club be in if, if it's sold? Will it get sold at kind of prices? But Juventus in particular, what was your view when you heard the news break this week? Yeah, imagine if. A year and a bit ago, I'd have said to you, there's a club that play in black and white and they've got an ownership problem and they stand a real danger of going down and nobody sees any light and the fans are very unhappy and there's friction and there's wholesale change needed. Then obviously we think that that was Newcastle United's situation and now flash forwards, it's basically Juventus' situation. It's different in the sense that they don't have a new owner coming in, but it's the same in the sense that you have a club on the decline that are in very real danger now of being punished to the point where they could be demoted or given a points deduction that effectively relegates them. And it is because of either mismanagement or probably more accurately, if we take into perspective the Turin prosecutor's vantage point, intentional deception and there is a difference here because mismanagement implies you've accrued debt due to only poorly handled ownership and that's one part of the Juventus situation but the deliberate aspect is the response to that mismanagement and that is equally as damning and as worrying so the backstory here is basically that Juventus thought that they were going to join a Super League in April 2021 and their now former president, Andrea Agnelli, was a key driving force behind that to the point where when the U-turns happened and the European Super League collapsed, he had to leave his position at the European Club Association because there was just too much friction. And now he's become a black sheep within football and ultimately within his own football club, Juventus, which is why he and the entire board have been forced to resign. But the reason why I bring up the European Super League, Steve, is because that came for the founding members with a one billion euros joining bonus. And this is why, in particular, Juventus, Barcelona and Real Madrid have pushed so hard and have remained loyal to a potential European Super League because ultimately they need that money. Then on top of that, add the pandemic to the fore and Juventus are struggling financially and that has led to an alleged false accounting. And there's two very broad, and I'm going to simplify this, aspects to the false accounting. One is what is called a salary manoeuvre and the other is an inflation of transfer fees or an invention of fees pertaining to transfers. And I'll come on to the second aspect in a moment. And a salary manoeuvre is basically saying that when you classify your books in order to keep within financial fair play, you have things like salaries. And if you say that salary during the pandemic is deferred, then you can still list that full salary. And because that is something the club is spending, it can be offset and therefore it can help you balance your books. But if, as is the accusation, a player has actually agreed to a permanent wage cut 
not a deferral of their full wage, or if that player has actually said, don't worry, I'm not bothered about any wages owed to me, then you have to declare that on your books and it's no longer a club outgoing. So the salary manoeuvre that's being alleged by the Turin prosecutors is effectively that Juventus have said that they're deferring their salary and have listed the full salary as something the club owes, i.e. a debt to the player. And then the player has actually said to the football club, don't worry about it, which means that they've been able to inflate a wage bill and offset that on their books, but they never owe that money because the player doesn't want the money. And then the second point is around transfer fees, whether an actual number paid to a club or something around a transfer like an agent fee. And again, the Turin prosecutors are saying that Juventus basically added numbers that didn't exist and transactions that never took place in order to once again balance their books. So this is all around false accounting. And Juventus's statement acknowledges now that the salary manoeuvres in particular are open to interpretation and that the club feel this board, because of their close proximity to an ongoing investigation, are not the right collective group to lead the club out of what is a very worrying and dramatic scandal. So they've all resigned, including Andrea Agnelli. And that leaves Juventus in an extremely difficult position because even with a new board, they will still have to face the consequences of what the club have done. And if the Turin prosecutors are successful or regardless of that, if new evidence comes to light under a UEFA investigation that sees Juventus in breach of financial fair play, then they could be punished. And that punishment can come from UEFA it can come from Serie A, or it can come in a criminal sense. So there's kind of three possibilities here. But the most damning one is actually to the football club via UEFA, because with the criminal case, that can be done against individuals, and those individuals may not any longer be deemed to be directly accountable or connected to the football club. And the other thing to say is that when you have a criminal case around false accounting or fraud under the Italian system, there's hundreds of rounds of appeals. So the case can actually just time out. So I don't think that actually the individuals will be too concerned having left the Juventus board about the criminal proceedings. But evidence that comes to light via the criminal proceedings can then be given to UEFA. And that's the worry to the football club, because what UEFA have done prior to this new information coming to light and the resignation of the entire board, is they've agreed a settlement with Juventus for the financial years ending 2018 through to 2022. And that is based upon financial information provided directly from Juventus to UEFA, which has satisfied UEFA's committee looking into these finances that a settlement is sufficient. If new evidence contradicts what was provided to UEFA, which is deemed to be likely, then UEFA will terminate that settlement and reopen disciplinary proceedings for financial mismanagement. And that is the thing that could well trigger things like points deductions, or ultimately, if Serie A choose to act, a demotion. 
And given that 16 years ago, we had the Calciopoli scandal, which was the refereeing scandal that saw Juventus, who were at that point, at their peak, 36 times Italian champions, relegated to Serie B and stripped of two Serie A titles, there's a precedent there for the league to act quite harshly. So some might say, if you don't follow Serie A, that our Juventus will never be relegated. They'll never be pushed off their pedestal. But there's a very real possibility of that because Serie A have got precedent from 16 years ago. That one was due to a refereeing scandal. This one is due effectively to alleged false accounting. And make no mistake about it, Juventus are in big, big trouble. The new board is not going to just paper over the cracks of this scandal. A new board are going to have to deal with the fallout of this scandal. And it is very, very likely that there will now, over the course of the coming months, be some form of football sanctions, not just legal sanctions or criminal sanctions against individuals. But it's very, very likely that there will be some form of harsh football sanction against Juventus because new information is coming to light and UEFA have, in essence, reopened their investigation into financial fair play and Juventus, having previously back in August already agreed a settlement to try and draw a line under it. But now the Pandora's box of Juventus scandal has been reopened and it's just going to be very, very difficult for the club, even under a new board and a new era, to shut that box without first being punished in a sporting sense. Yeah, it's an amazing, um, amazing time in football, and 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 things like this coming out, it's uh, it, it it nothing nothing shocks me anymore. I've got to be perfectly honest, and um, I guess what always shocks me in these situations, Ben, is 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 sometimes the punishment doesn't fit the crime, and we've seen it once or twice before where. We think clubs are are going to be severely punished, and and then you know we find that there's always a loophole around things. Ben, do you think that would be the case with Juventus? Well, a lot just depends again on the Turin prosecution. That's what I find so interesting that they're looking at criminal charges, fraudulent charges around false accounting, and different individuals, past and present, by the way, at Juventus could be pulled in. And then much like the FIFA scandal that broke under Seb Blatter, the club may distance themselves from the act of an individual and try and argue that that individual should be punished for actions that the club could never have known about or be accountable for. But what's interesting is that the club have, from an accountability perspective, directly engaged with Juventus and agreed on that settlement. So if anything they've said as a club at that point, and that's not individuals, that is a club in an official capacity talking to UEFA. If anything that they've provided to UEFA for the financial years 2018 to 2022 doesn't match new information that the Turin prosecutors find, even if the Turin prosecutors are not successful in criminally charging individuals or the club to any great degree, because the Italian court system, as I've already mentioned, is slow and allows a lot of loopholes for appeal, UEFA can still take that information because it becomes in the public domain. And that's when Juventus become in big, big trouble, because if they've lied directly to a UEFA disciplinary panel, at that point, if their settlement is terminated, there's a range of punishments that could happen. And then 
the appeal system from Juventus' point of view is a lot harder because UEFA and or Serie A have all of the cards. So this could be one to watch where UEFA issue quite a strong punishment and then there's two sort of possibilities. One is that punishment is quite difficult for Juventus to argue against, which was certainly the case with the refereeing scandal 16 years ago. Or two is just UEFA might be very bullish knowing that it paints them in a strong position of integrity and transparency. And then it will be up to Juventus to go to somewhere like the Court of Arbitration for Sport to try and overturn proceedings. But I don't see too many legal loopholes here if Juventus's books just look cooked. And another interesting side point, just to mention briefly, is in these financial years, let's not forget, and in Juventus's pursuit of particularly winning a Champions League, what did they do right at the beginning of this period in 2018? They signed Cristiano Ronaldo for 100 million euros in 2018. And that huge transfer fee plus Ronaldo's salary of around about 30 million euros created huge debts for the club. And then the pandemic hit a few years later and the situation was exacerbated. So this, again, is another big club, a bit like Barcelona, taking a risk-reward strategy and spending money that they didn't have or spending money that they were projecting against success because of who were they, they were buying in Cristiano Ronaldo. And then a few years later, it didn't work. And then the pandemic hit. And also in that mix, three years after signing Cristiano Ronaldo, the Super League failed as well. So a whole storm has hit from the Ronaldo money they spent to the Super League not happening, which would have offset all of the costs and cleared the books. And that's ultimately why Juventus were driving it. Add the pandemic to the mix as well. And you can understand how dire the situation is. And if they've falsely accounted to stay within, for example, financial fair play to offset all of that spend, then they are in big, big trouble. Mentioned the Super League um, segues nicely into my next topic with you, Ben. Is the Super League dead, do you think? Or do you think they may have one more crack at it? Well, they're trying. A22 is a company a lot of people might not know, but they are effectively the Super League promoter and the front-facing PR arm of a new European Super League that they still believe will happen one day. And the challenge at the moment is that there's obviously a fan backlash, but I don't think that's of as much concern to the organisers. It's more that there's no legal mandate at this stage to actually have a Super League. So UEFA have a complete monopoly over European club competition. So what A22, i.e. the founders of the original Super League, which launched back in April 2021, are doing is they're going to the European Court of Justice to try and break the monopoly of UEFA. And Newcastle fans will know all about this type of case because guess what? It's an anti-competition case. And A22 are arguing as a co-claimant in a very intriguing case that UEFA should not have the ability to have sole control over the clubs and the finances to put on tournaments. And there will be a non-binding 
legal recommendation made towards the end of December and then a final ruling in either March or April next year. So if A22 win that case, then they have a mandate. And if they have a mandate, some of the clubs may then soften on their stance if there is a huge financial reward. And the other thing which I think is quite interesting is A22 have also returned and said that now it will not be a closed competition. It will be a meritocracy. And in order for it to be a meritocracy, they obviously need a connection because you can't have a meritocracy if the domestic leagues don't accept that should their clubs finish in a certain position in the league, they'll qualify for European Super League. So that's the other challenge that let's say they get the mandate, which is still pretty unlikely from what I understand. At that point, you would still have Champions League and European Super League. And if the club said, we're fine with that, or if the club said, we pick European Super League over Champions League, now there's a mandate, the leagues could still turn around and say, sorry, we're going to revoke your entry into the Premier League or La Liga. Or UEFA could say, sorry, I'm going to revoke your registration. And the best example of that is the Live Golf Tour that had a mandate, founded, nobody could stop them. Saudi backed, of course. Yasser Al Rumi and the Newcastle United chairman is involved. It's up and running, but immediately the PGA Tour and the European Tour caused friction and said, sorry, you can't hold cards to the Live Golf Tour and our tour. And now there's this whole debate rumbling about whether a player can return to play in a major or not. So the entire sport of golf has fractions and it's completely split. So that could happen in theory, but obviously the difference is that an individual golfer can make an individual decision, whereas teams have to think more collectively. And if they were to lose their entry into their domestic leagues, then a European Super League would have to be more expansive and offer them basically games week in, week out in more of a league than a knockout competition. And that might be the aim, but you can only facilitate that if you've got enough entrance. And right now, there's only three teams willing to say they will enter, and that is Real Madrid, Barcelona and Juventus. And that's not enough to have a league and that's not enough to have them playing against each other. So that's where we're at at the moment. And there is collective opposition. The Premier League clubs are not going to take individual decisions at this point, from what I understand. They're going to pull together and are collectively opposed to the European Super League. And then Atletico Madrid and Inter and AC Milan also not interested at this point and other organisations away from the clubs and the leagues like the Football Supporters Association are also adamant that they will not back a European Super League. So it's going to be intriguing. And then as a little subplot, of course, if everything goes well at Newcastle United, they are in a position where they are suddenly viable and marketable and somebody that I think the organisers would want in a European Super League, either because it's done solely on merit and they qualify for it or because they get an invite. And this is what's interesting, that when the organisers use the word meritocracy, it's very important to stress that they have not yet defined if meritocracy means based upon league finish in the previous season which is what we as football fans would understand as meritocracy, or whether they mean their own criterion for meritocracy, which could be based on things like European coefficients. It could be based 
upon fan bases, they could come up with their own scoring system. So meritocracy might still be a way of getting who they want in the league rather than only last season's league finishes, should the European Super League be up and running by probably the earliest 2024, 2025. And even that, I think, is quite ambitious. But the backdrop here is that multiple sources, despite denials from JP Morgan, still allege and show credible evidence, I have to say, that the European Super League is Saudi-funded, which obviously makes Newcastle United's position quite intriguing because club sources have always said, certainly from the Amanda Staverley corner, the Rubin Brothers corner, the Eddie Howe corner, the Players corner, and the Newcastle United fan corner, there's the same consensus as everyone else that people don't want a European Super League. But what's PIF's perspective? We don't know. And if it is indeed Saudi-funded, and there's certainly evidence to suggest that JP Morgan is a masking for the true source of that money. If it comes from Saudi Arabia, that again is when there'll be a lot of delving into who the source is. Does it have a connection to the Saudi government? And if it does, we'll be back to where we started again as to whether Newcastle United will be asked slash told to join a Super League should an invite be tabled and it get off the ground. So we're talking hypothetically. I certainly don't want to make any unfair or undue assumptions because Newcastle United's position at the moment is that they, like everyone else in the Premier League, are wildly against the Super League. But are they going to be put in a slightly awkward position if, and it is an if, it's Saudi-funded, it gets off the ground, and then suddenly the Saudis want Newcastle United to be a part of it. So I certainly think it's unfair for us as media to make that connection in our writing or reporting with any kind of credibility or definitiveness. But based on what I'm hearing at the moment, you can certainly join some of the dots and watch it over the next probably year or two to see whether Newcastle get put in that awkward position one day. So I think it's worth pointing that out. But I think we also have to be very balanced and fair and say that if you ask anyone at Newcastle United at the moment, they tell you exactly the same thing, that they do not want to join a Super League. They didn't want to join a Super League at the time and they don't want to join a Super League now. But naturally, things can change. The ownership group has changed. Newcastle United's league position has changed. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it's... I mean, talk about a conflict if um, if we end up in a situation where... <laughs> Newcastle get an invite and we've got to, you know, we've got to make that decision, you know, we've got to make that decision or tool to make that decision. I mean, as you say, it's all hypothetical. It's all good fun to talk about. But, um, wow. but also, uh, even in April 2021, of course, when it launched, Newcastle could have one position because that ownership group wasn't in. And yeah. now they're in. PIF could have a different perspective. And that might even be regardless of whether or not there's any Saudi links. If we take the Saudi links away to make it a bit simpler, Yasser Al-Rumian is behind the Live Golf Tour. So he knows all about starting something new that challenges the traditional hierarchy of a sport. So if he's in favour of the Live Golf Tour, why wouldn't he? We haven't asked him. He hasn't commented on it, so I don't want to put words into his mouth. But if he's in favour of that breakaway, what actually is the difference between the European Super League and the Live Golf Tour? And therefore, if he backs one, 
why wouldn't he want in at the ground floor on something like a European Super League? You know, we've got to be fair to him and to PIF and say very openly that they have not commented on this. They will not comment on this. We do not know PIF's specific official position. Sources tell me what Amanda Staverly thinks. Sources tell me what the Rubin brothers think. But it will be a very interesting situation if it gets off the ground. And then we wait and see how PIF and Yasser Al-Rumian act and whether or not they're in favour. Yeah, definitely picked the wrong, um, you, know, you know, the wrong idea for me. And I can't see it happening. I think the, um, you know, the objection from fans far and wide originally uh, will continue and I don't think Newcastle fans will be any different to that because it's um you know it's 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 our game you know in, in essence you know it was it was created in this country and um you know to have a suggestion that you would dismantle everything just for for greed um for for, for, for you know for, for countries for companies whatever is um is crazy but uh, it's not for me um but hopefully it doesn't come to that moving on to Jack Grealish's apology. Now, I never thought I'd see the day. However, the fact that he's part of an England squad, which includes Kieran Trippier, Nick Pope and Callum Wilson, may well have had something to do with this statement, which he put out on Friday. And it goes as follows. I'm actually buzzing the way that he's reacted. He said something about me in the interview the other day. He wished me the best. I thought, what a guy, man. Because if that was me and somebody had said that about me, I'd have probably been the other way. He seems like the most harmless, nice guy. So fair play. I'm buzzing for him. Um, I mean, not quite an apology as um, as, as, as it was highlighted on uh, on a, a TV network, a.k.a. Sky Sports. Um, but, I, I mean, look, I guess we can draw a line under it now. Miggy's been very, very respectful whenever he's been asked about it. Eddie Howe hasn't made a big deal about it, mm. um, you know, and ultimately, yeah, maybe that little bit of criticism might have crossed his mind that, you know, maybe it's the first game after he played um, and, and probably when he, whenever he faces Man City, he's going he's gonna to have a blinder. But, you know, ultimately, we can draw a line under that now, can't we? What did you make of that? I think so. Um, you're absolutely right that the comments come in light of a... England camp where he's surrounded by <laughs> Newcastle players. So it's bound to have come up probably in a tongue in cheek kind of way. And you can turn it on Grealish now if you're the Newcastle players within that England camp. And you can say to Jack that he needs to find some Miguel Almiron form or he'll be subbed himself from games or he won't come on off the bench. And that's testament to Almiron that everyone can laugh about this because if Miguel Almiron was not in form and if you like the joke still stood with some kind of validity then at that point you might say that Grealish is just having a needless dig at a player who's out of form it's unfair it's harsh and it's testament to his personality albeit it was a joke against Riyad Mahrez at the time and it was a throwaway comment that we dine off in the media but I don't think that there was any real malice to it. It was a stupid comment rather than necessarily a highly offensive comment. But now it's flipped and Miguel Almiron is just about the form player in the Premier League. It's great to see he worked his socks off in pre-season. We saw clues in pre-season that he would find this form and now he's Newcastle's top scorer. And Riyad Mahrez or Jack Grealish would 
bite your arm off to be in Miguel Almiron's form and have his talent. And I think that the Newcastle United fans can turn that on Jack Grealish now and in a fun way, in a team bonding way, kind of gang up on him. And it's great to see that Jack Grealish said that he's buzzing for Miguel Almiron. I am too, by the way. I think that it's so satisfying to see a player not only be more confident and enjoy his football, and he's always played with a smile on his face, but get the game time and be clinical and find this kind of form when you know what he was like previously. When you have a player like, let's say, Erling Haaland coming into the Premier League with a big reputation and just hitting the ground running, it's great, but the pedigree's always been there. But when you see this level of improvement and so quickly you know that the talent was always there and the players just found a bit more freedom and a bit more hunger. And it's fantastic to see because he's a great lad. He's been patient at Newcastle. He's worked hard. He's not part of this supposed spend under the new owners that is Newcastle allegedly buying their way to better fortunes, which is nonsense anyway, because they bought smart and they didn't really pay above the odds. The only player they've paid above the odds for is arguably Chris Wood. And that was because they needed a focal Legend. point to get out of trouble. I mean, you could say Isaac as well, but the amount paid matches the reputation. So now Isaac has to grow into that price tag. But generally speaking, Newcastle haven't bought their way to success like Abramovich did in his early years at Chelsea. They bought their way out of relegation with some shrewd signings. And why were they shrewd signings? Because it's a two-for-one. They got Newcastle out of trouble, but they've proven themselves to be players that can also get Newcastle challenging for European football. But Newcastle have also done well because they have got the best out of players like Cher, Red Hot Form, Almiron, Joe Linton, Bruno Yes as a newer signing, but again, not at sky-high rate. And it's great to see from Almiron's perspective, therefore, uh, that he's one of those that has, um, I think, just himself got a buzz off the new ownership group, the fans returning to St. James's Park, the chemistry in the dressing room, and he's thought, wow, everyone's confident, everyone's loving their football, everyone's enjoying life under Eddie Howe, a cloud has been lifted from the football club and that somehow allowed Miguel Almiron to find his fall. And by the way, the, the comparison with Almiron and uh, Mares that Grealish made is quite interesting because um, Riyad Mahrez was a bit like Miguel Almiron at Leicester. And I think that's what people forget, that Mares played a couple of seasons for Leicester and had all the turns, he had the pace, he had the instinct, he had the touches, he had the talent but he couldn't hit a barn door. He could not score a goal for Leicester to save his life. And he was an incredibly, incredibly frustrating player to watch as a result in his early days at Leicester City. And then again, something just clicked and suddenly Riyad Mahrez set the world on fire. And to illustrate that, when Leicester were in the championship, and got promoted to the Premier League in 2013-2014. Riyad Mahrez played 19 league games. He scored three goals. When Leicester had the great escape in 14-15 under Nigel Pearson, Riyad Mahrez played 30 Premier League games. 
He scored four goals. He found some form in the last nine games when Leicester got out of trouble from nowhere. Following season, Riyad Mahrez played 37 Premier League games. He scored 17 Premier League goals and he got a ton of assists as well and Leicester won the Premier League. And Miguel Almiron is in that same kind of statistical transformation where his potential was always there. His talent was always there. His instinct was always there. But he never quite found a way to statistically back up his talent. Now he's doing that. And if he does a full season of that, much like when Mares did a full season of that, who's to say that Newcastle won't qualify for Champions League football because they're certainly on course to do so? Let's talk England then. Uh, through the group stages, nine goals scored, top of the group. Um, the fickleness of football fans is something we've spoken about on here many times. But <laughs> we beat Iran 6-2. We're going to win the World Cup. We draw against the USA. It's doom and gloom. Southgate out. And then we beat uh, below standard Wales, three goals to nil. Uh, we finished top of the group. We end up with Senegal in the next stage. And suddenly it's all back on and it's coming home again. Uh, sum it all up for us. Yeah, I think that England started very well, certainly from an attacking point of view. And they showed that they have goals from a number of different places. Defensively, still some question marks in that opening game to concede two against Iran was disappointing, but I think that they made a statement from the perspective of going forward. And then when you win your opening game and you score that many goals and you know that goal difference is the first separator, it becomes a bit easier to focus on not losing that second game because you know that even a point and you're virtually through. So I do understand why Gareth Southgate didn't want to lose that USA game, but they were just on the back foot. The USA were hungrier. There was no balance. And because he picked the same 11, it was surprising that they didn't really try and kill off the game early against the USA and put the tournament to bed. But they responded brilliantly against Wales. They dominated that game. Great to see Marcus Rashford in excellent form, as he is for his club, Manchester United, as well. I think that Jude Bellingham's had a good tournament so far. I think Phil Foden's going to be a starter going into the knockout stage and will be integral to England. But it's great to have Saka there and Mount as well. So for me, England's success is all about those creative-minded players that are versatile, that are in the three or even the two, depending on where Bellingham plays, because he can play next to Rice or in a more advanced position. It's all about that five, assuming that he plays a 4-2-3-1. I also think England are actually just as good in a 4-3-3 as well. And you have the opportunity to play Sterling on one side and maybe Saka or Foden on the other. And that is a balanced formation from England's perspective too. So Southgate's got options. So the key now is really that he works out his best 11 and his best formation and keeps England on the front foot. And I think that, you know, for all of the talk, for all of what's happened, England should beat Senegal. And then we're exactly where we thought we would be, which is a quarterfinal against France. And then can England take advantage of France's injuries? Can England capitalise, as we saw against Tunisia with France's loss, on the fact that when they make changes or if they need those changes in a big game, 
because of the injuries, they don't have the same depth. And therefore, England will fancy their chances against France. So this whole World Cup, for all the build-up, for all the discussion, for all the debate about, you know, Foden not starting in the first two games, I still think it comes down to France. And I still think, unfortunately, France are the favourites. And the question is all about, can England do it in a big game? Forget the build-up, forget games we think England should win, forget the goals so far, forget the impressive performances against Wales and Iran, at least going forwards anyway, can England do it against France? And for me, sadly, the answer is no, because there's the same defensive question marks. And I don't think we keep a clean sheet against France. And therefore, if you're going to win the game and not take it to penalties, you need two goals against France. But I don't think France only score one against England either. So that's my concern. That's my worry that we get exposed defensively and we go out to France. The other challenge now as well, by the way, is that because Spain finished second in their group, for England to actually win the World Cup, if everything goes according to plan, we'd have to beat France. We'd have to uh, beat Spain. And then we'd have to beat Brazil or Argentina. So it's not a good run to the final. And that, I suppose, is my point, that you might have a great performance against France and be defensively resolute and be clinical and end up going through. But you've got to do it again in the quarterfinals. You've got to do it again in the semifinals. And that, that path now towards the final is so difficult that I just feel one of these big teams is going to expose us defensively and knock us out before we win the tournament. Again, you know, it just depends. I mean, this seems to be a weird World Cup. Germany going home, of course. Spain, yeah. I, I know there was a dubious goal, but Spain being defeated by Japan 2-1. Um, you know, we've seen Saudi pull off a shock result. We've seen so many things happen in this World Cup. Never say never. Um, and, 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 and as I've mentioned on this show with you before, you know, mm. I think they're going to win. This is the year to win it because, you know, these players are getting older. Um, they've had tournament experience. And, and never say never. But you mentioned France potentially in the next round. Got to get past Senegal. It's not going to be easy. And a lot of those players in the Senegal eleven play in England. Yeah, they do. I think that the thing that gives me hope about Senegal is just that England are very focused at the moment. They're coming off a excellent win against Wales. And then from Senegal's point of view, you've got no Sadio Mane and that will take its toll. But also Everton midfielder Drissa Gay picked up his second yellow card of the tournament. So he's serving a one-match suspension and that's going to be a bit of a blow as well. So I think that Senegal may struggle. I think Edouard Mendes looked a bit hit and miss in the tournament as well. Koulibaly at Premier League level, despite being an excellent defender, can get a little bit exposed in terms of his pace as well. So there's really going to be only one overwhelming favourite in the game, and that's England for me. And if they can score early... I think the floodgates might open. Senegal have been great so far, especially given the adversity that they have had with the whole Mane situation. But I think this will just be one game too far for them. 
So I expect England to go through. I expect Phil Foden to start and probably Marcus Rashford as well. It's hard to drop Rashford back to the bench when he scored a brace in the last game and has got three goals in the tournament. And then we wait and see, for example, as to whether it's Foden or Sterling. And is it Henderson and Declan Rice? And then Jude Bellingham in a more advanced position? Or is it Rice and Bellingham and then three ahead of them? So there's some selection headaches for Gareth Southgate and, of course, Trippier or Kyle Walker as well. I think it will be Walker if he's fit. But I actually believe in a game like Senegal, you'd be better off having Kieran Trippier because of what he can offer from dead ball situations. But that's one for Gareth Southgate to ponder. And we know Gareth Southgate in these big games tends to turn to the players he trusts over necessarily the form players based upon their club football so far. So I sort of sense that the Wales lineup will be what he goes with, give or take, because they played so well. And that was last time out. And the reason for that as well is because after that first game, the win over Iran, what did Gareth Southgate say? He said, if I was a player picked in that first game and I was dropped for the second game, I'd feel very hard done by. And I think his justification for Senegal will be exactly the same thing. I think he'll turn around and say exactly the same line that sometimes in a major tournament, when you play so well, you simply can't drop players. So that's where we stand. And then, of course, heading towards France, the, the other question is just around Harry Kane. And, um, you know, it's such a gamble um, to not play Kane against Senegal. But Kane doesn't look fit. His ankle looks dodgy. So if you've got all these other form players, is there a logic in it's a massive gamble? Because if you go out, think of the scrutiny. But if Kane's not 100% fit, why not start Wilson and bring on Kane if you need him? He's looked good, Wilson. He's looked good. Yeah. Or the, the other thing you can do, of course, is you can start Kane, but you can agree that um, he's not going to play the full 90 minutes because you're probably going to need Kane against France. Uh, only Southgate knows how fit percentage-wise Kane is. But uh, to me, um, even though he's weighed in with some assists, he doesn't look right leading that line. And that, again, is another reason why I worry for England when they come up against serious opposition. Mm, interesting. Uh, another story to come out of the England camp this week was from uh, James Madison in an interview. I'm sure you will have listened with interest. Uh, but uh, talking about the banter uh, that he's had with Kieran Trippier, Callum Wilson and Nick Pope uh, about a potential move to Newcastle, um, you know, in the last transfer window. What did you make of that? Yeah, I mean, we know that Newcastle wanted Madison. We know that he likes a lot of the characters in the dressing room at Newcastle and those bonds are only going to be stronger during the course of the World Cup. So you've got players there that can tell Madison, come and join Newcastle. Here's what the dressing room is really like. And we know that Madison, to some degree, had his head turned. So I wasn't surprised to read those comments. And also we know that Eddie Howe would love James Madison and Newcastle obviously made an offer or two that was well below Leicester City's valuation. And that valuation could still go higher because Leicester would love to offer Madison a new contract as well. So I think that Madison won't really have his situation changed in January because it's a slower transfer window. It's a quicker transfer window. And it's highly, highly likely that Madison won't really 
influence the transfer during the World Cup because he's going to get very limited minutes. He might not even get any minutes. And he's been injured in a lot of the build-up to the World Cup too. So I really hope he has a role to play. I really hope that he gets thrown on and can have an impact. But really, he's put himself in the shot window at Leicester and the things that happen at England aren't really going to influence that. And my understanding with Madison is exactly the same, that regardless of any banter, regardless of any friends, regardless of any suitors, the plan from Leicester's end, because they've lost Fafana, is not to let Madison go mid-season and actually to try and get him to sign a new deal. And then the plan from Madison's point of view is, should he not sign a new deal, to consider his options in the summer, because in the summer, he'll know exactly what he's got. So if Newcastle come back and they'll need, I would say, 60 plus million, maybe even more because Madison's form is great. But obviously there is the fact that with every transfer window, the price drops as well because the contract dwindles down a bit further. But I think that you're going to need at least 60 million from Leicester's perspective. They're going to be very firm. And I think from Madison's point of view, he's very comfortable at Leicester because the team have improved. And even when they were in dire straits at the bottom of the table, Madison's form was sublime. So therefore, when you look at it that way, why wouldn't Madison just wait until the end of the season? And then if he's talking to Newcastle, he knows if he's got Champions League football or not. When he's talking potentially to Tottenham or vaguely, because they're not that seriously interested at this point, but potentially Chelsea, he again knows exactly what he's getting. And nobody can say categorically at this point if Newcastle, Chelsea or Tottenham will make Champions League football. The only two teams I think that we can virtually guarantee is Man City and Arsenal. And the Champions League football, by the way, just so people understand, it is not only, and this is for every player, but particularly Madison, it's not only because he desperately wants Champions League football next season. It's because... If you're a player negotiating with Newcastle in January, then you get one wage and that wage will not be as high as if they qualify for Champions League football. So, of course, if he joins in January and Newcastle qualify for Champions League football, there will be bonuses for qualifying for Champions League football. That's not the same as your base wage. And it'd be very difficult for James Madison half a season to get that base wage upped there may be some kind of generic club increase that gives everyone a bump. There will certainly be a bonus that rewards the entire squad. But if James Madison waits and Newcastle have Champions League football in the summer, he can ask for a lot more money because he'll be aware that everyone at the football club has been elevated. So he has an extra bargaining chip to get the best possible financial deal. And that's another reason to wait as well. So it's not only about Madison saying, I want to know what I'm getting, because what you're getting is still only for one season and it can change again. It's also about Madison making sure that he has the longest possible period to transition. He has a full pre-season and he has the best possible bargaining chips up his sleeve. And that's why I'd be surprised if he goes anywhere in January unless an astronomical offer is tabled. Quick prediction for Senegal, uh, England. I think England will win 2-0. 
England to win 2-0. I know you've got to get off for a press conference, but thanks, as always, for joining us. Look forward to getting you on next week and enjoy the World Cup uh, and the uh, the knockout stages next, Ben. Come on, England. Let's hope Callum Wilson gets on and scores. Enjoy the game, everyone. Take care, mate. Bye-bye. It's right. A big thanks to all of our sponsors, starting off with Skips and Bins, Telephone 0800 2545 253. Email inquiries at skipsandbins.com. The website is www Easy contract free and pay as you go waste collection. Thanks also to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD hemp and cannabinoid specialists. Find them at the gohd.com. Thanks also to three properties. And they specialise in sourcing investment properties for their clients who are looking to invest in the Northeast. They offer a full in-house service from sourcing the deals to managing the properties for you. They've done over 100 plus deals in the past 12 months for clients all over the UK. Give them a follow on Instagram, matty.patter underscore Northeast Property and phil.read underscore Northeast Property or email phil at threeproperty.co.uk if you're interested in getting a good property deal. Big thanks also to Mr. Vicky's uh, Sources Handmade in Cumbria. You can find them at mrvickys.co.uk or order some of the sources by calling 01768 210102 or emailing info at uk. Thanks also to Blowhole Brewery and uh, their cans uh, are vast and uh, in the shape of the old uh, Newcastle United strips from the 1990s. Bonnie Blonde, Geordie Juice and uh, Fog of the Tyne. Uh, some great uh, beers. Get yourself to blowholebrewery.co.uk to order your cans in for the festive period. Thanks to Media Arts uh, for all the help with the video side of things. And thanks to qtechshop.co.uk makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls End, Newcastle. If you want to subscribe to the channel, hit the subscribe button on the bottom right-hand corner. Hit the like button and click share. Please join the channel as well to support us. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify and other podcast providers. If you want to join the channel, you can use this QR code or just go to nufcmatters.com and look for membership pack. If you join in that particular way, you get a scarf, a cup, a pen and a membership card and entry into the monthly draw. We also give you a free car sticker. All you need to do is subscribe to the show and then email john at nufcmatters.com to claim it. We also support the food bank on this channel, nufcfansfoodbank.co.uk. Go to that website and make a virtual donation today. A couple of events coming up. Paul Gascoigne is at the Fed on the 4th of December. Contact the Fed in Dunstan and Gateshead for more information. And Peter Beardsley, 20 tickets left for this. Is at St Dom's Catholic Club in Newcastle on the 10th of February next year. Uh, contact St Dom's uh, via their contact details on their website or on Twitter. If you're looking for a Christmas present for uh, a Newcastle fan, you can go to badboysbooks.net. You could order a copy of Enemy from the Bender Squad to the Gremlins or the last remaining copies of Black or White, No Grey Areas by Lee Clark and Will Scott. If you're looking for a Christmas jumper for your night out, go to nufcmatters.com and get your Bruno jumper today. Thank you.